0: okay y'all so content warning we say fuck a lot so just if that wasn't enough of a warning for you uh content warning just content warning in general how's that
1: oh so we talk about death and murder and stuff
0: oh yeah blood and guts and death and murder and religion and weird shit
2: yeah it can get nasty Mm
0: we will be sure to warn you if there's anything especially bad ahead of time (laughs)
1: And now we're going to get into the good stuff.
0: Ew! You already gave me Alex Jones. I'm like, what up? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, time to talk about murder. Murder. So, who would have reason to murder Brit If it's not, you know, Harvey Weinstein or the government or the Russians. Um, well, there's basically two people in her life that were the ones who were always around. Her husband and her mother. So let's uh, talk about Monjack a little. <laughs> so after a series of high-profile relationships, the world was totally shocked when suddenly Britt was married to a nobody. No one even knew that she was seeing anyone, and no one knew ha- who the hell this guy was at all. But he was an English script writer. Um, he wrote the script for the movie called Factory Girl. And he also wrote a script called a uh, pro- project called The White Hotel that unfortunately never um, got off, but it was also the script that won her heart. Um, and as jarring as their relationship suddenly seemed, they appeared absolutely love struck. On the surface, it sounds like a pure fairy tale romance. He was, no- but he was nothing like any of her previous exes. And then there's the question of how did they meet? So there were four stories of how they met. The first is they met in a party in 2007. The other was through a friend. And another is on just film sets they ran into each other. But then there is one more. They, apparently they met when she was 17. Modrak, in an interview, told a story that her first editorial photo was of the then underage Murphy, and he immediately fell in love with her. Quote, No one knows this, but I took Brittany's first photograph for a magazine. It was for Jane magazine. Brittany was this big, like... Putting a hand to his hip, and too young to touch. To make a long story short, I, short I was very patient.
3: Oh. Oh. He was
1: twenty-five at the time. Oh. Oh, that's so gross.
2: Oh. No thanks.
1: So a similar, a similar st- story was told on Larry King when he'd been invited with Sharon to come on after Brit's death, and he told how they'd stayed in contact ever since then, and their history is what helped them weather the storm of the Hollywood rumor mill. The whole time he's telling this tale is just nodding her head along as if she remembers so clearly. He was 25. Mm. He was living in England because he's English. So, what, are they writing letters? Oh, and god. why was your mom okay with this? Never mind that. Why did no one else know about him? Oh my god. Mm. There's no consistency. There's no consistent story of when they met. And all of them have given different... These different stories at different times. Come
0: on! Oh my god!
1: What could his motivations be? One of the obvious ones is money and fame. There was a lot of rumors going around. The only reason that Monjack ma- got married to Brittany was to be around her fame and to get to her money. As after Brit's death, you know, Monjack was totally devastated. And that's when the cracks in his facade started to appear. People began to ask questions. Who was this guy anyways? So in his defense... Jack had requested that he not be included in Brit's will, meaning everything would go to Sharon, saying he would never need the money. Sharon had offered to split everything, but he declined. In a quote, I will keep the hundreds of love love letters from Britney and my favorite black cashmere hoodie that she started to wear when we first met, and said that he was richer than he could ever dream with memories. Sharon frequently insisted that Monjack wouldn't let Britney pay a dime for anything. So, quote: I think the biggest misconception is that I was living off my wife, Brittany. Forgive me, people don't seem to want to hear it, but I was paying the bills. Brittany was making these god awful films that went straight to DVD, that were so horrible she wanted to kill herself.
0: Uh... this is her husband. Uh,
1: uh, I'm st- yeah, and so that's pretty much. i oh, uncomfortable. Sorry. I was
0: just gonna say I'm so uncomfortable <laughs> right now. <laughs>
1: So those are like the few stories that actually like support him maybe having money and not being there, but Damn there man. are so many more that don't, oh. including one from her former business manager, Jeffrey Morganroth, who had a lot to say about this, um, saying that after Brittany died, Monjack drained her account by 80% before his death, leaving Sharon almost penniless. Brittany never really handled her own money like when she first got started her mom kind of did all that and then when she got married i guess simon had taken it over and he kind of cordoned her off from nearly everyone like apparently he cut off her cell phone and so morgan roth had no way to contact her so as if draining the estate wasn't bad enough he seemed to be eager to capitalize on her death almost immediately beginning a press circuit
0: oh hey and giving him
1: yeah a major interview to a magazine within hours of her time of death.
0: Motherfucker.
1: A few weeks later, he invited a camera crew into the family's home, giving the most cringe-worthy tour of a house that I have ever seen. And even showing them the bathroom where she had collapsed. Oh! He apparently did this for $10,000.
0: Wow, well we know the price of a soul now. <laughs>
1: He brought the crew around the house while sucking on a giant cigar and he looked just dazed and like out of it the entire time as he's peeking over things like fresh flesh from a carcass, like bringing them into her closet and showing all his clothes and stuff Ew. and just rambling on. So what the fuck? Who's this guy? Where the fuck did he come from? So he was born in 1970 to a mother who owned an interior design business and a father that worked for the city. He grew up in England and never wanted for anything. When he was 15 years old, his father would pass, and his mother says that this is when much of the trouble began. His father's death had destroyed him. And she says, I think his emotional development was arrested at that point. He remained a troubled child for the rest of his life. Children in these scenarios are three times more likely to have depression, a lower sense of purpose in life, and psychiatric disorders, as well as becoming substance abusers. Thing is, Brittany wasn't his first wife. In 2001, he met Simone Bian, who was like a TV personality in England. They had they, three months into the relationship, they got married in Vegas. Five months later, things came to an abrupt end. Him spending his time sitting around all day on the couch in food-stained jogging pants, smoking cigars, eating junk food, and watching TV, having not worked on any of his scripts in months. So, yeah, he'd tell people that he was a billionaire, he would run around saying all sorts oh, of things.
0: My God, this goes against everything. If you're going to lie, lie well.
1: Exactly. So, The White Hotel is this, like, it's it's based on a book. Um, He and this woman, Susan Stewart Potter, decided they wanted to write a script and adapt this movie sometime around 2005. And uh, it seemed to be going well. They They secured funding. They were in Santa Barbara. So, yeah, they started working together, and they got the funding. And then he sent the script to Murphy, who was in Japan filming at the time, who absolutely loved the script. Um, but wanted to make some changes and agreed to meet him in L- LA when she was back from her shoot in Japan. This is the only account of Brittany and Monjack's meeting that is, can be verified by a third person. That's not like the family. So they met and it sounded like she could secure the rest of the funding for them. So Monjack took the script back to Susan and said that she needed to rewrite it, the whole thing. So Susan did and then he took her name off oh. of it. Everything went to hell after that. He turned the investors against her, and she was left with nothing. So she put all her efforts into trying to get some of the money back. She went to the FBI, where she was able to show them that nearly a million dollars had gone into the project. An FBI agent met with her and produced a picture of Monjack and asked her if this was the same man. And it was. So she asked where he'd gotten it. And they said that they'd gotten it from ICE because his visa had expired and he had been reported. <sighs> ICE believed that the marriage was a marriage of convenience, so they kept close tabs on the couple. The surveillance protocol was completely standard, nothing out of the ordinary, but in their eyes, Monjack was like any other foreigner that overstayed his visa. They didn't care who he was, just that he needed to step in line. So the couple's run-ins with DHS, ICE, and the FBI had the couple, couple scared looking over the shoulder, and this led the couple to the conclusion that Murphy was a, simply a paranoid drug addict, so this is because she was constantly thinking people were watching her and acting super wow. sketchy. Susan was told by his lawyers that he owed everyone, and that he'd never paid money to anyone. If she wanted to get any money, she'd have to go after Brittany. Eventually, he had to pay Stuart $300,000 in the legal battle. Um, before Brittany, there was a period where um, Monjack had stopped drinking and doing drugs, so he could be sharp and scam people out of money. Factory Girl is one of Monjack's Biggest claims to fame that he wrote this script um, that's based on the life of Edie something or other, which is Andy Warhol's girlfriend mm. or something. Anyways, he claimed that he wrote the script, but uh, he didn't. My <laughs> God. Uh, the uh, guy who did write the script said that like they originally brought him on as kind of an assistant mm-hmm. writer kind of thing. So this was, and Richard Golub, who was the attorney that was handling this case, said that he was a terrible screenwriter and, but he could spin these crazy self aggrandizing stories. So when he finally got fed up with dealing with Simon, he confronted him and was like, cause he started, he started looking into him. He's like, Oh my God. He's like, you've left a trail of people behind that are going to see you because you took their trust funds or inheritance or con them out of condiment investing into projects that you never delivered. And Simon retorted said, you totally got my number, I've really lived this fucked up life, but I've... And I've kind of cheated a lot of people, but I'm turning over a new leaf. Uh, uh Mm-hmm. Bonjack would later claim that the studio had stolen his script and sued them. And while the legal battle was going on, they couldn't (sighs) release the movie. So rather than fight him in the court, they just gave him a screen credit to make him go the fuck away. My God. His entire persona is built about, around this credit, which is complete bogus. And just a couple of the fun things about him. He's a hysterical conspiracy theorist who believed, among many things, that 9 11 was yes. an inside job. And was being followed by the government spies. After the 9 11 attacks, he told his family and friends that he was secretly advising Tony Blair on no, British government defense policy. yes, the these are my fuck. favorite people. Yes. He had no credentials in the field or any experience. He even had fake passports and yes. various identities. He was a sociopath who used all his all this bullshit in his life to exploit and manipulate others.
0: I have a theory. He was trying to poison <laughs> her and accidentally poisoned them both. <laughs> Five months yes. apart. Slow poison. Okay. I can do the conspiracy theory, Illuminati, Chai Com, New World <laughs> <laughs> Order bullshit too. <laughs>
1: He had this Argos watch, which he had with with fake studs mm-hmm. on it, worth like ten dollars. But he would tell you it was a crystal studded watch worth Stop thousands. It. He was never modest, but you couldn't dislike him oh as a person Oh my God!
0: No, mm-hmm. yeah, but yes. Come oh on, my God. this is insane.
1: He had two warrants for his arrest in Virginia for alleged credit card fraud. What? they're, they're jealous that he's married to a famous oh, star. Oh no. Um this is testimony is Simon is Connors. He conned his last girlfriend out of her car and money left with all, left her left her with awful credit, frequently uses fake social security numbers, and he left his other girlfriend in London with a twenty thousand dollar credit card bill that she was unaware of until he Jesus was gone.
2: Christ,
1: dude. Oh my God. And this is probably the nicest thing that anyone has said about him. It's Simon is someone who I suspect went through life with genuine intentions of making his various schemes work and then being reluctant to shoulder the blame when they didn't. He wasn't bad, but he was chaotic and he liked to make the most of anything he had done. He was interested in photography, so he would tell people that he'd taken pictures for fun. <laughs> that is oh the nicest thing
0: anyone said about him. <laughs> uh, wow. Oh, yeah. Now, how do you feel about secret children? I mean, we're already here.
1: <laughs> so in England, Monshack fathered a child uh, with a woman named Marcia Newman, who was his, orig- his first wife. The mm-hmm. child was a, was a daughter named Jasmine. When she turned two, he left to chase city lights, preferring nights in exclusive London cocktail bars and hanging out with the rich and famous. So he just fucked up. Jesus. Off. Um, according to uh, Source two years ago, um, so two years before his death, he went as far as to try and hire internet artists to remove the negative press circulating about him on the web. He was also looking for a publicist that would do whatever, whatever they could to get rid of the bad press and restore his public profile, said the insider who had been approached by Monjack to work for him. But when I saw what kind of mess he was in financially and what he wanted me to do, I declined. Yeah, so Simon believed that he and Brittany were under surveillance by the government, and as much of a conspiracy theorist as he was, he was actually right. Ever since he overstayed his visa in 2006, they were, all, they were on a watch list of security by ICE. So it was awfully strange that he got married a month after that. He lived in a life of paranoia. People who knew him said he liked the pedal stories and really believed that he was a secret international spy. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was telling people at the time though that someone was out to get him and believed that someone was going to slip something to him I and mean, Murphy.
0: So the dude's already a scumbag. Like yeah. died in the wool scumbag. Okay. All right. Yeah. So um
1: when he died, um the coroner, the on call that came was a woman with the last name Blanchard. She came in and did the initial investigation. And in her case files it says next of kin notification. According to Linda, his mother, her son was not legally married at the time of his death and had a minor daughter living in England, which we know. So were they ever even married? Marriage fraud is considered a felony punishable up to 5 years in prison and up to $250,000. The ICE investigation was finally closed after seeing both of their death certificates, so the case was still open. You know, Murphy's quietness about the relationship, the dating before, and even confirming the ceremony even took place is very unusual. She didn't make any public appearances with him or announce their engagement until after they were married. This could also explain the inconsistent stories about their mate their meeting. Cuz if he'd known her since she was 17, It made a lot more sense than they'd only been dating for a couple months and got married suddenly after he got arrested. So do you think they were actually married?
0: (sighs) See, now I'm doubting myself here. Something sketchy, lots of sketchy. I mean, it's too convenient that they were. Yep. There's no Mm. records of the marriage
1: certificate. It it happened in her house. The only people that were there was her mother and the house staff. So
0: no outside witnesses. No they weren't married. I call bullshit. <laughs> I call bullshit and I say he killed her. I call bull I'm I'm all up in I'm in it now. I'm all up in the shit. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
1: so obviously there's something codependent happening here. And we're gonna talk about how he controlled her life. So her friends were super concerned about the relationship with him, obviously. They reported that her erratic behavior began after he showed up and that he controlled who she could talk to. On Larry King he said that he went and contacted her boyfriends, but her ex-wife, was after she died, because it's something that she'd asked him to do. So he made all the calls to her exes. And Larry asked "Then, like, well, what about her girlfriends? And Simon said, well, she didn't really have any. She didn't really hang around at sets, and she never went out, that he had to force her out of the house. As soon as anyone would express any concern about Monjack, she would kind of end up shutting them out. Ugh.
2: That's not sketchy.
1: So, a few months before they got married, um, Murphy's friends held an intervention that included her, her mother, and Monjack. They were afraid that her new boyfriend had made her isolated and pre- and presented the group with Monjack's history of financial troubles, the issues with immigration, and his previous marriages. To which Britt responded, I appreci- appreciate you caring, but Simon can explain it all. Multiple sources said that... Uh, Brit had gained a reputation for her control freak husband lurking around set and intervening in production, frequently while drunk, restricting which managers and agents she could speak with, and even picking her roles. He had referred... He had been referred to in Hollywood as Satan and on set she functioned by popping vitamin pills and drinking coffee all handed to her by Monjack. Oh my god. At some point in 2009, Monjack insisted that he take over her makeup and hair duties. What? Her last four films, he did her makeup and hair. Ah. This topic came up on Larry King, and he said, I did her hair and makeup in four movies. I dressed her, and I suppose that's where the Sven Galley thing comes from. It was our magic time, to which Sharon said that she looked good, and she never liked to be without her loved ones. So he was there with her on set all the time. One of her co-workers said her makeup wasn't altogether flattering. The way her lipstick was applied, everyone agrees, but no one talked about it. I'm assuming it's because Simon Hatt was the one doing the makeup and no one wanted to question him. I know it seems bad taste to say this, but it looks like it was put on by an artist at a funeral home. Oh my god. And I have a picture (gasps) to show you. (laughs) Oh no. It's gotta be bad. So on the left, you have Brittany Murphy in her film Uptown Girl. And on the right is a promo picture for the last film she ever did. Do you see like the lip liner all around her lips? really bad. How like... Her eyebrows aren't shaped at all. Her hair is fucking damaged to shit.
0: You, you know what that reminds me of is the, the slow slide of um, Amy Winehouse.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Someone took this picture of her and showed it to um, a Hollywood stylist <gasps> who couldn't figure out who it was at right. first. Like They had to be told who it was. Now, what Monjack had to say about all this was that every story needs a villain and everyone has decided that it's me. The reports about Puerto Rico are set in fancy fantasy. I was never and ever drunk there. What I did do was demand that they follow union rules after she had worked 12 hour days, 60, six days a week. But she needed breaks. She was entitled to. But I was difficult because I was the enforcer to protect Brittany. She was far too nice to stand up to the directors and the producers who wanted to work her to exhaustion. Jeez.
0: Yeah, he's a protector. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Prote- mm-hmm. I, I think that gets confused with usurper and user.
1: Mm-hmm. Simon even told terrible tales about his mother to keep her from telling Sharon and Brit the truth about him. She'd only met her daughter-in-law once at dinner. But Simon talked to her every day by phone, Skype, and email. She was always with one mm-hmm. of them. Even when she wasn't feeling well herself, she was always caring for her mother, who was a can- two-time cancer survivor, with a debilitating neuropathy, which means lots of nerve pa- nerve damage, essentially causes constant pain. And then her husband, who, well, fuck everything. And for nearly a year, majak had been having seizures, se- seizures and supposedly heart attacks. There was a heart attack a month before her death, and like, she was absolutely selfless, putting herself, putting everyone else's needs before for her, is taking care of these people non-stop. So, there's this Quote here. I'm curious to see what you guys think about this. Which is, Brittany's safe haven was the bathroom. I was always pleased to see her in the bathroom. That meant she was pulling herself together, you know, reading Vogue and putting on her lipstick. That was Brittany. You know, that was her comfort zone. She'd spend hours there sampling cosmetics and perfumes that crowded every inch of counter space, critically studying her body image. Sometimes singing to herself or writing bits of poetry or listening to music. But in a tour that Monjack gave after, uh, after her death, he said that the cosmetics all belonged to him. He had purchased them to do her makeup. There's a video where Brittany was giving a tour of her new house back in 2003. And she said, this bathroom is incredible. I've always found sanctuary in the bathroom wherever I've been living. I remember sleeping in the bathtub when I was a little girl. I thought it was a really nice, just private pay- place. I can't help feeling like this is like a birdcage.
0: Yeah, no, that's no, there's automatically something wrong there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm.
2: But
1: when she died, he he was clearly very broken up about it. Whatever it really was, he loved her in his own way, but that was part of a sickness. He was mentally ill and couldn't help preying on her. So I read a lot of theories about what was going on. So like, yeah, could be murder, could be a lot of things. But I began to wonder if what happened to her was more of a suicide by suffocation. Well, not like her suffocated herself right. as in by Amon Jack right, and right, right. her mom mm. controlling her life. Like she's, she was stuck. Like her half brother Tony said that she was lonely and dreamed of becoming a singer. And back in 2003, they went on a tour for the troops and he had never seen her so happy. She said it felt like this is what she was missing in her life. He says, she was a singer. Oh boy, she was the greatest. We talk about the arts. I'd send her some of my compositions from time to time and she sent send them back. That with her opinion, but the pressures of to remain acting in Hollywood is high, and she didn't want to do it anymore, but she kept being guided to do so. Mm-hmm. And he said, You've got to look at Brittany and you gotta look around Britney and make your mind up. Who was her controller? Who was the one who ran the show? I have no proof of anything. If I did, I would have blown this off, the lid off of this 10 years ago. And there were many anecdotes about how Brit's entire demeanor would change when Monjack entered a room. She was usually happy go lucky, always joking and chatting warmly with cast crew and whoever was around. She was flirty, and her happiness was infectious. But the moment that Monjack stepped onto set, she would stop mid-conversation and go silent and withdrawn. One of the crew members was saying on one of her shoots, she was one of the team when he wasn't here. She would be giggling and really having a laugh and was touchy-feely, and he would arrive like he owned the set, and she would automatically revert to his shadow. People have said that she was hot and cold, but I'd say it was this guy that caused her to bounce around like a ping-pong this ball. Is,
0: this is depressing, just because yeah. like it sounds like a really parasitic relationship. Oh my God. Um, one,
1: of the, one of the actors on her last film said, While filming the last scene in the movie where Detective Franklin and Mary, which was her characters say their goodbyes after he helped rescue her, Brittany asked if so the producers could rewrite the ending so that Mary could end up with Detective Franklin. Of course, they chuckled and just said, No. I thought it was a sweet, sweet suggestion and maybe even a little telling about her state of mind. She was looking for someone to rescue her. Mm. It makes me kind of sad when I think about yeah. it. Yeah. Damn. So that all seems really fucking sketch, right? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: <laughs> Supremely.
1: Let me tell you about her oh, mother. No. Um, so, yeah, her and her mother were crazy fucking close. Um, growing up, they went from hotel to hotel, couch to couch, as she tried to make her Hollywood dreams come true. They were more like two best friends than child and parent. Prior to them purchasing the house in 2003, the pair were always staying with friends or family. So, they didn't really have their own home. So, she had this completely unstable life. Like, she liked to stay in a bathtub as a child. Sharon controlled all of Britt's life. Her accounts, her bank accounts. She never, like, Britt never even learned to drive. Like, Sharon just took care of everything. And she, Murphy just openly admitted that she just let her handle it. Now, when she was transitioning into film Monk Lulis, Sharon was struck with breast cancer. So we now have 15-year-old Brittany, who's the sole provider of the family, not having a house. And not only that, she now has to take care of her mom, who has breast cancer. She never got to be a kid. Eventually, she went to remission, but then Sharon had cancer again. It uh, reoccurred back in 2003. She and her mom lived together for years. Everyone thought it was a bit odd, but her mom was her soulmate, her guardian, her best friend. They loved each other so much, despite their differences sometimes. Her mom was her angel. When uh, Britt died on her death certificate, Sharon left the name of the father blank and claimed at one point that Angelo wasn't her father at all and that her real father was dead. Angelo had to get a DNA test to confirm that he actually was and get the death certificate amended. Was Sharon worried that Angelo would go for some of the estate? Whatever it was, she clearly wanted nothing to do with him and that she wanted Britt to do the same. But like Monjack... Angela found death, Brits' death extremely suspicious and began to dig, which infuriated Sharon to the point that in 2013, she wrote an open letter and submitted it to The Hollywood Reporter to basically lash out at Angela, saying that he showed up only after his daughter saw success as an actress and again after her death. She called his claims more of an insult than insight into anything that really happened. Angela was not there from the age, after the age of one. He certainly wasn't around during the 12 years of prison. 12 years, of prison, years he spent in prison and three criminal felony commissions. But, like many things in this case, this is not as clear-cut as it appears, because it makes it seem like her dad's just this, you know, deadbeat dad who just fucked off and just wanted to come back and use her. But, well, Angela had known Sharon since she was 14. She had been friends with one of his sons. Ten years later, she showed up in Florida and called him up, and he hired her to to work at one of his strip clubs or discotheques. Um, in 1974, basically, Angelo and 29 others were charged with conspiracy to sell drugs, and he served his time. As he says, I made some mistakes along the way. My past is colorful, but I've paid my debt to society many years ago. He owns his mistakes encourages, and encouraged Brittany to change her name so that it wouldn't affect her career in entertainment. He said, I wanted to distance her from my past. Without having any distraction, my kids are my world. There is nothing I wouldn't do for them. When Brittany was two, Angelo and Sharon officially got divorced. His time in jail often said as the reason behind the split. Sharon tried to cut Angelo out completely, like she did a lot of other relatives and friends. He, but, he, you know, he doesn't speak to her at all. So he and Britt had to meet in secret because her mom didn't approve, which is relatively common among children with divorced parents. A quote from Brittany of 1998. My father wasn't in my life growing up, but gradually through the years, we've touched base. He's a, re- he's a really funny, adorable character. And he's tons of pictures of her. Um, they clearly had a relationship, despite Sharon saying otherwise. Angela has three other children, Tony, Pia, and Jeff. Angela hadn't spoken to Britt three to four months before her death. But he'd been devastated when the news came out. Now, Angela dismissed most of Sharon's letter, letter but he had a problem with this line we will never know for sure who killed Brittany. And he says, how can any mother say that and be comfortable with that verdict? With all his pleas to reopen the case following on deaf ears, it, he decided to take matters into his own hands. He sued the coroner and the LAPD and they reached a settlement where if Angela dropped the charges, they would ship the specimens directly to an independent lab. So he did. Winter, the coroner acknowledged that the coroner's office did not test the hair samples, but said arsenic poisoning was never raised as a possible contributing factor to her death. We've never tested for that because there was nothing that led us to believe that she had died from poisoning. When they finally obtained the samples, he sent them to Carlson Lab Co., then detected that they were high levels of 10 heavy metals in Brittany's hair, the types of metal that are commonly found in rat poison, pesticides, and insecticides. Not long after this, the results came under fire, and many specialists discrediting the lab that had done the testing, and this caused the general public to just dismiss dismiss Angel's findings. But this didn't stop him. Angel had the samples tested at Exova, a lab defined as one of the leading providers of testing, calibration and advisory services. It was sent directly from the coroner's office to this laboratory. The lab had been performed another round of tests and even expanded upon the list of toxic heavy metals that were found in Brittany's hair. I have no do- doubt that my daughter was poisoned. Brittany's hair being tested is another important step in a long journey to determine my daughter's true cause of death. So heavy metals are present, whether they're in our water, they're in the earth or all sorts of places. So. Hair dye is a common source of heavy metals, which we knew that Brittany dyed her hair. Chain of custody is completely crucial in autopsy and forensic toxicology. It's really easy for hair to get contaminated by outside sources, even packaging. But, you know, they made sure that that didn't happen in the second test. Angela thought it was murder. So he consulted Cyril Wecht, a renowned forensic pathologist and legal consultant who has worked on dozens of famous cases, including JFK, Sharon Tate, and John Bonnet. Wex said the first thing to think about when is how the heavy metals got there because they appeared in the hair. They had to have been absorbed and metabolized in the body and then grown out of the hair follicle into the cuticle to be found in testing. She was not well, but that kind of pneumonia does not occur that rapidly. What stood out to me was this young woman of 32 years old. How could she have developed such an advanced state of pneumonia and such an incredible state of iron deficiency? Where in the world was her mother and her husband? Why didn't she receive proper medical care? I was just puzzled by all of it," he says. "There were ten heavy metals that were found, and they were de- detected to be on the levels permissible by the WHO." And Wecht says he's never seen anything like this. He also noted that it was surprising how bad, with how bad that Brit's pneumonia was, how it Sharon sure avoided it. As a two-time cancer survivor with chronic illnesses, her immune system would have been fucking shot. Yet the two people that died weren't cancer survivors. Rex says that he'd, he'd looked over the autopsy information to Monjack, though, and he says that he has no, di- no doubt that Monjack died of natural causes, basically his body, just giving out. The findings of these findings of these metals in her hair makes her death extremely suspicious. But the LAPD never reopened the case. And at the time of her death, Brittany displayed all the symptoms of heavy metal poisoning, including headaches, dizziness, abdominal cramps, coughing, sweating, disorientation, wheezing, congestion, and pneumonia. And Monjak sim- exhibited very similar symptoms. Angel said that some people that have listed to be dead by acute anemia have been found to have died from arsenic poisoning. According to the LAPD, if the coroner concludes an accidental death, there's nothing the police can do to reopen the case unless there is evidence of foul play. Their hands were tied. Basically, LAPD is like, well, the coroner's got to do it. And the coroner's like, well, the LAPD's got to find evidence. So no one's taking
0: ownership. Yeah, death. it's just like, just pass the buck. Just keep passing the buck along. Oh my gosh. You know, and it's like this guy, her dad went
1: to two labs because they didn't like the first one. Right. He brought on Cyril Wax, who's got like 50 years of fucking experience with this shit. Like, the cases he's worked on is crazy, and they're still not willing to look at it.
3: Oh, Jeez. Jesus.
1: The, and one of the best parts was that uh, Sharon was unwilling to give permission to have the body examined for further testing. Like, Angela had offered to pay for everything sharon just had to give the sign off that it was okay and she refused Gosh. to unfortunately angelo died at the beginning of 2019 oh wow but before before his death Bryn kurt james hammond had interviewed angelo about britney as part of his book investigating her death well many of the sources that Bryn had talked to had wanted money for the time even for statements as small as a paragraph not once did angelo ask for a single penny he stated that he was doing the interview to set the record straight while Sharon was auctioning off Brits things, clothes, personalized jewelry, swimwear, passport, and personal cons- correspondences, You shoes and watches.
3: What?
1: When Angelo was asked if he'd ever sell anything of Brits, he said, never, never. I can't fathom doing such a thing. I've saved everything belonging to her from baby shoes to her first drawings, cards, letters, and hundreds of our pictures taken together through the years.
3: Wow. Hmm.
1: In another interview, Angelo was asked about his opinion of Monjack, to which he said, Sharon should be the one that's being interviewed and investigated first and foremost. Let her explain why she had my daughter execute a will, leaving everything to her, and specifically excluding Simon. Let Sharon explain why they decided to do this right after Brittany and Simon told her their plan to move to New York and have a baby. Let Sharon clarify how she was planning to support herself for the first time in decades once Brittany moved away. Let her talk about auctioning off Britney's underwear, passport, cards, and clothes. There are so many unanswered questions that need to be addressed. Out of the three people living together in the same house, only one of them survived and benefits financially.
0: You know what? You know what? Fuck everybody.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Jesus.
0: (laughs) Fuck y'all. God, that's bad.
2: Yeah, that's no good.
1: So there's a potential problem of medical neglect. Mm Uh-huh. Uh, the, the day that Bert Murphy died, at about 3 a.m., she woke up, made her way to the balcony, and then asked her husband to get her mother. So, when Sharon came over, she was, um, Brittany was lying on the patio trying to catch her breath. She said to her daughter, Baby, get up. And Brittany said, Mom, I can't catch my breath. Help me, help me, help oh. me. I'm dying. I'm going to die. mummy. I love you. Oh, no. Oh, my God. What? They would not call an ambulance until 8 a.m.
0: What the Holy fuck? Holy
1: shit. So we left her that way. Um, You know, they she like fed her a bunch of tea because she looked like she was dehydrated. But meanwhile, her lungs were slowly being filled with fluid. Sharon was sympathetic, but Brittany frequently complained about ailments. So she didn't take it seriously. She was always so dramatic, Sharon says. At 7.30 a.m., Britt stumbled into the bathroom. Not long after her mom came in, because she'd been gone for a bit. She said, Mommy, I really don't feel well. At 8 a.m., she collapsed. She called 911 when Simon pulled her into the shower to try to wake her up. But by the time that Brittany collapsed in her bathroom, there was probably nothing the paramedics or staff could do. Pathologist Dr. Richard Shepard said. But had she been taken to the hospital 24 hours earlier and given intravenous drugs, there was a good chance she would have survived and would still be here today. Oh, my God. Britt was struggling at 3am, saying she couldn't breathe, saying she was going to die, but neither her husband or mother called the doctor. Brittany's half-brother says, If you look at the distance, it looks like this young lady, a fairly healthy girl. She's home with her supposed husband and mother, and she died. How absurd is that? It's only in Hollywood that it's considered another day in the zoo. No one takes her to the hospital, which is just four miles away. Oh my god. So you'd think that after that, that uh, Sharon would learn something. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> She didn't. Ugh, God. Because for Jack, something very similar happened. No. Now, he was talking about, he'd been fucking trash and depressed for, like, the last four months. Um, but things were starting to look up, and he was, he was talking about planning a photography trip, and he was talking to his mom about this. And, but then he wasn't feeling well for a couple of days, and he complained of numbness and tingling, and was even more reliant, reliant on his oxygen machine. The weekend before he was supposed to fly out, he felt desperately ill.
3: Mm.
1: And his mom says, he called me the day before he died. He said, Mom, I made it through the night. I'm alive. And then for the next few hours, it was impossible to get any sense out of him as he grew worse and worse. I'd call and he wasn't able to respond. Oh. She knew that something was terribly wrong. And he looked awful all week. He was so terribly ill that I finally got a hold of Sharon, Brittany's mom, and asked her to get him a doctor. But she said he was fine. But anyway, she said, all I know is that before Simon's death, he was having hallucinations that things were crawling out of his skin. He was distraught, and he was fatter and more bloated than he's ever been. So, during the evening, Sharon said she decided to stay in the same bedroom and keep a watchful eye on her son-in-law, sitting in the chair next to the chest of drawers, watching him slowly get worse, and coughing up brownish-black fluid, trying to clear oh. his lungs, which Sharon swapped away. So... By the way, if you're ever in a scenario that your mucus is coming out brown or black, Ugh. like, and you didn't just snort charcoal, go to a doctor immediately. This is a sign yeah. of an incredibly, incredibly severe lung infection. Wow. No, that color's totally normal. It's fine. Totally. Super so, normal. Yep. So, sometime after min- uh, midnight, Mondrak had fallen asleep, and then she finally bedded down around that time. But at four a.m., Linda awoke and called Sharon, saying that she thought Simon was in a coma. That she could feel it. And Sharon said that everything was fine, that Simon was sleeping and that she was watching over him. But Simon wasn't fine. He had a fever that ranged between 96 to 100, 100, uh, nearly 106, uh, 106 degrees. And he spent the majority of his time coughing up this mucus and clutching at his chest. He was clearly Uh. suffering, yet Sharon did not seek any medical help for his worsening condition. Even though she witnessed her son-in-law fainting on a number of occasions that day, she also said that Monjak had been complaining about ob- abdominal and lung pain. It's fine, it's totally normal. Yeah. So the statement that she gave the coroner was that she woke up at 7.30pm on May 23rd to the sound of gurgling coming from Monjak. She said she went over to the bed and saw a brown brown li- foam liquid coming out of his mouth and she said that although concerned, she wasn't alarmed as she felt he was just sleeping and she proceeded to wipe his mouth and unblock his airways as best she could. She also stated that she thought Monjack simply had pneumonia again. Now, anyone who has had someone sick with pneumonia knows that immediate medical treatment is critical. After 45 minutes, she decided to call for medical attention as his condition hadn't changed. No, he just has pneumonia again, the thing that killed your daughter. But Linda Monjack, Simon's mother, has a very different recollection of that day. She said that her son had made a delirious call to her in his final hours, slurring his words and slipping in and out of consciousness. She had begged Sharon again to call 911, but Sharon refused. Around this time, Monjack made a call to his own phone for some reason. Some speculate that this may have been his attempt to call 911, but was too disoriented to complete the task. Linda had managed to get a hold of this recording from his phone and handed it over to the LAPD. On this recording... On this recording, you can hear that he's really sick and is desperately in need to go to a hospital. He's telling Sharon this. And in the background, Sharon responds, well, just tell the doctor that you have a temperature of 104 degrees. He never managed to call that doctor. There's, we have no idea why this message is there. But he's telling her that he needs medical attention. Oh, my God. And she was going to make him call 911. The guy could barely breathe.
0: <laughs> but, I, yeah, it's like it's like at this point, like just, just call 911. Like, why are you? Oh, my God.
1: Eventually, Sharon did. But on the call, Sharon was all over the place, unable to give a straight answer and sometimes not even hearing the operator at all. Like, you can you can pull up both their 911 conversations and
3: mm-hmm. listen to
1: them, and this one is just fucking weird. So, she gets on the phone with the operator, and the operator asks her for the number that she's calling from. So, she responds, it's the house. He asks for clarification, she says she doesn't know what number she called <laughs> him from. My son-in-law, he stopped breathing. He was just breathing, and now he stopped breathing. He's sleeping. Hurry up, please. He had fluid in his mouth, and he snored, and then he stopped breathing. Oh, my
2: God. Oh, Jesus.
1: When asked if he's awake or not, she doesn't know. He's sleeping, but he's not breathing. Because that's how sleeping works.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When
1: asked if there's anything in his mouth, she can't answer that. She says it's closed. So the operator instructs her to open the mouth, and she says that she can't. He asks if he's having a seizure or any convulsions, and she says, I don't know. At this point, the operator says that if he's, he's either seizing, holding his mouth closed, or he's in rigor mortis. And yet she still can't confirm if he's having a seizure. He instructs her on how to see if he's breathing. And she says he's not breathing, or he could be breathing a little bit, almost. He asks if she feels anything, like his breath on her. And she says, she says that he could be shallow, shallowly, but she's unable to answer. And she complains that the bed is too high. So he tells her, to get, tells her to get on the bed. And she says, are you crazy? I am already on the bed. She repeatedly okay. tells him what? to send help after he's repeatedly told her the help is on the way. And that they're only trying to do is try to keep him alive until they wow, get there. this is just... And this call, she seemed resistant to doing anything that was asked of her. And she was repeatedly yelling at the operator.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: When the first responders arrived, Mondrek was already dead. And they speculated that it may, he may have been so for a couple Jeez. hours. A couple hours? Jesus Christ. The on-call yeah. coroner, Kelly Blanchard, arrived. And once she inspected the body, she took... A statement from Sharon and informed Blanchard that Monjak had cardiac problems, was scheduled to undergo heart surgery as a result. However, prior to Blanchard arriving, Chief Winter had spoken with Manja, Monjack's Monjak's primary care physician, who told him that Monjack had recently undergone an EKG and CT scans and found nothing wrong with him. At his request, he had forwarded the medical records to the office. So what Sharon was telling him was not true. Now whether or not she would have just been fooled by Monjak is a whole other thing. If Sharon genuinely loves Simon, she would not have hesitated in calling them for medical attention. Shh. Linda says, I pleaded with Sharon over and over during those hours to get medical help to get him to the hospital, but she didn't. I call and he wasn't, and he wasn't able to even respond. It was at this point that I demanded to speak to Sharon. I told her, please, please call the doctor, get him to the hospital. Please just get him some help. She told me that she'd been through this before and, si- and Simon was over the worst. And it wasn't long after that he died. She says her biggest regret was not calling 911 herself. She was in England. Man. So what was she supposed to yeah.
0: do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's it's almost incomprehensible to be honest. Like, yeah. that's really, 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 really fucked up. So, ultimately,
1: the person who went who gets money out of all this right. is Sharon,
0: right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, two years after Brittany and Monjack's death, Sharon filed a lawsuit against attorneys that had represented her in the original suit against the builders for that for the shoddy. Um, Construction materials. Mm -hmm. And claimed the lawyers had never told her about the possibility of a wrongful death suit not being possible due to the mold on the property. Because suddenly in 2010, she had decided that it was mold that killed them, even though she absolutely said that it wasn't. Mm. Okay. Simon's mom never received any of her son's possessions. No photos, nothing from his portfolio. (sighs) Apparently he had an Andy Warhol, and Sharon said that it was Brittany's. She wouldn't what? let her take anything out of the house. She said that he was broke and didn't have any money, yet she said that she absolutely adored him. Sharon said at one point that she was going to make a book to celebrate her daughter's extraordinary life and career. The same thing that she criticized her her ex-husband for doing. Of course.
0: Of course not. Why Why? Why would there be?
1: Yep. Yeah. When the coroner asked her about Monjack's death, he, she said that he died of a broken heart. By this point, Sharon had cut off all communication with Linda. Despite Linda's numerous attempts to reach out to her and build bridges. After all, they shared a common bond following the deaths of both their children. Sharon wasn't interested and made herself conveniently uncontactable. Sharon fell off the face she... of the earth. You cannot find anything about her. What? After this, like pretty much after her open letter, she just disappeared. No one knows where the fuck she is. But um... Now, Brittany had a dog named Clara. Um, it was about a year old when she died. And so, Sharon has the dog still. Well, at least as long as the dog's still alive. Right, and the right. last rumor was that someone said that she was back in Hollywood and she was using the dog for, as a career, oh. she got the dog as a Hollywood dog. You know what? Alright, so. Oh my poison. god. Poison. So poisons are rarely detected in cases where clinical autopsies are performed by hospital pathologists. This is because pathologists are not thinking about homicide or looking for poison. Unless a specific poison is suspected, the chances of random finding one is incredibly unlikely. From 2007 to 2011, 68,000 murders have been committed, but only 42 of them use poisons. Where forensic toxicologists believe that homicidal poisoning is actually far more common than these stats say. In 2010, 2,800 people died of poisoning. Well, only 11 of those deaths were ruled as homicide. Oh, uh, 1973 were listed as undetermined intent for the manner. 1951 were listed as undetermined. In other words, these deaths are considered suspicious, but they had no way of knowing what happened. So suspicions may be raised, la- ra- raised later in a situation like this, like how Angelo raised flags with both his lab tests and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you look at the fact that Sharon's delays of calling 911 in both cases and her disinterest in finding the actual cause, even changing her mind to later blame the mold and then selling off Britt's stuff and just generally inconsistent with her versions of the events. The poison is not detected and identified during the autopsy, and it's almost all of these cases the people get away with the crime. Exhumations are rare and cannot happen without the necessary legal authorization the process. is both complicated and drawn out. So why did it take Sharon an hour to call 911 for her daughter, even after Brit told her that she thought she was dying four hours previously? Hmm. Why did Sharon tell 911 that mouth-to-mouth was performed when she later stated to Larry King that no one did mouth-to-mouth? Come on. Why did Sharon not put Angel's name on the desk hey, certificate? They
0: married.
1: With Monjack, why was there a five-hour delay in yeah, calling for fun. help? Why did she dismiss Linda's pleas to call an ambulance? Why did she lay at his side for several hours, wiping his mouth even though she couldn't tell if he was still breathing? Why was she un- so unhelpful with the operator? Why did she decline Winter's request to inspect the home for mold after Mon Jack's death? Why did she change her opinion on the deaths two years later if she was happy with the original findings? So no one doubts that Britt was Sharon's world. That she loved her more than anything, but Sharon blamed herself for what was happening to Britt's career. And maybe more. She was the one that brought her daughter to Hollywood. If the stories of prescription drug use is true, maybe she blamed herself for that as well. She saw her daughter getting more and more paranoid, isolated, and miserable. This could have been a mercy killing. Maybe she expected that Monjack would get framed because of how much the world disliked him. And when that didn't work and she saw Brit's estate draining away, she moved to get rid of him mm-hmm. too. When Winter simply wrote both cases off as natural, she was free and clear until a couple years later when the funds were getting tight and she realized the missed opportunity to sue the builders for wrongful death. In cases of chronic poisoning, victims develop weakness, muscle aches, chills, and sometimes fevers. The couple had all of these. Other symptoms include inflammation of, of sensory emotive nerves and mucous member linings in the throat. Sharon was wiping away black mucus substance from Monja. Poison will often cause fatigue, confusion, and an odd or awkward manner of walking. See Brittany's last performance in the movie Something Wicked, where she apparently walks super weird.
3: Right. It causes
1: muscle spasms, stiffness, and awkwardness of the limbs, tremors of the hand, impaired consciousness, which can be accompanied by respiratory distress. Arsenic is the weapon of choice among those who murder by poison. It has no color, no smell, and almost virtually no taste. After arsenic has been ingested, within 24 hours, it moves from the blood to the liver, kidneys, spleen, lungs, and gastrointestinal tract. 30 to 40 minutes after ingesting a small dose, the the victim will experience dry mouth and maybe a metallic taste, like she was parched and needed tea. They They may also experience headaches, muscle cramping, vertigo, vomiting, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. If they ingest a larger dose, it can cause convulsions, seizures, often leading to death within a few hours from shock.
0: This is just a good note. Don't ever get famous. It ain't worth it. (laughs) 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 Like, come on.
1: So there is one other theory that no one seems Uh to talk about. Jeff Uh Berlodi, which is one of her other half-brothers, he has something called dysautonomia. And he said... My grandmother suffered from this. My aunt suffered from this. I've been dealing with this for a number of years now. And from the information I've seen on TV and from interviews and from conversations I've had with Brit over the years, there seemed to be symptomatic things that she was dealing with at the time that may have been very similar. I believe there's a real good chance that dysautonomia played a role in the situation. It's like I went Mm -hmm. from 185 pounds training three to four four times a week, you know, absolutely fantastic physical condition, to three or four months later, later, I was 130 pounds. Not able to leave the house. Heart rate not going below 100. I was in constant tachycardia. Constant blood pressure fluctuation. Dizzy spells nearly passing out. Nobody knew what was wrong. Diagnosis ranging from one side of the spectrum to the other side. Everything but what it was. It has taken 10 long years to get a diagnosis. And that's a major part of of what the hell this is. Medications are out. I've had absolutely zero luck with medications. And they seem to do me more harm than good. Jeez. So this disorder would explain a lot of what was happening with her. This is the genetic disorder, okay. came from her her great grandmother. Her bro- her half brother has it. There's there's a good chance that she may have Dang. it too. And that could have that could have been be why she was losing weight before and why she was kind of ditzy and stuff sometimes, which then got compounded All with right. everything else.
0: So is this an autoimmune disorder? Is that what's going on? Good thing I put hey, link here. Linky, linky, linky. <laughs> I'm very curious, because, like, that kind of hereditary stuff. Yeah, it's a condition in which the
1: autonomic, autonomic nervous system does not work properly. This may affect functioning of heart, yes. bladder, intestines, sweat glands, pupils, and blood oh, vessels. That's a yeah, lot.
0: That yeah, pleasant. that's a lot.
1: Yeah, so blog post about this, again, like, 2015. And, like, obviously most of the hype was gone mm-hmm. at that point. So no one was really paying attention to this. Like, I, I accidentally stumbled across this page about this, where he was talking okay. about it. So, it is it is possible. Okay. It's something that she like, it's such a rare disorder that you wouldn't find it accidentally, yeah. kind of thing. Like, he spent 10 years Jesus. getting it diagnosed. Ten, 10 years! My god. So, that closes off with some little more happy <laughs> stuff. So, Taring, Taring Manning said that she was haunted by her 8 Mile co-star Brittany Murphy as she DJ'd at an H&M party in Toronto this week. Obviously, not this week, but... Taryn was playing Eminem's Lose Yourself when she decided to give a shout out to the actress and asked the crowd, let's give it up for Brittany Murphy, one of my best friends who's not with us anymore. She was obviously so flattered that she made her spirit presence known by proceeding to shut down the entire music system.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's pretty good. Her half sister Pia says she had the supernatural influence to love well. It empowered her. Brittany could speak to a crowd and they all felt they knew her and loved her. When asked what Angel's favorite memory of his daughter's was, he said, we were in a restaurant in Lauderdale deciding what to eat. And she was only six. Burt Reynolds was on a, a table nearby. They were filming there and she went over. When they brought her back, the last thing she said, one day you're going to ask for my wow. autograph.
3: Mm.
1: In 2002, she did a Q&A with, with Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Drew Barrymore. And Drew Barrymore asked her if she were able to die and come back as anything it would be a redwood tree
0: Brittany murphy oh my god <laughs> what's your conclusion? So i don't know now that's the problem first i was like the husband did it and then i was like no the mom did it and then i was like the right you start looking at him he's like he's so
1: fucking sketchy and you're like oh my god but- some sketch yeah. he included but i don't know that it was
2: i think i think of this like after hearing the brothers' like testimony, it just sounds like everyone was taking yeah. advantage of the fact that they knew that yep. she was sick.
3: Yep,
1: yep, yeah. Well, I guess yeah. I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. Like she may have been abusing pills. That's a possibility. Mm-hmm. She may have had this disorder. Simon may have been for, like putting her into worse situations, like situations, and like you know, fucking like mind fucking her completely and constantly isolating her, which is not going to help mm-hmm. your health and just everything like that alone was like she had all these things against her because of everything that was happening that it really didn't take much to tip her over so yeah it's possible sharon did poison her or it's possible that just everything came down at once finally
0: holy shit oh my god yeah
1: yeah so i got most of that information well from a billion (laughs) sources which we'll post on the website obviously but i did get a bunch of information from the book by the guy that was speaking to you, Angelo. The book is called um, A Case for Murder, um, The Brittany Murphy Files, which ta- he has many chapters where he talks to a bunch of different people and gathers a bunch of different perspectives. It's a really good read. Um, there was also a documentary that aired mm-hmm. this year called Brittany Murphy, an ID, an ID investigation or something like that. Um, it apparently is available for streaming for free right now online if you're in the States. It's pretty decent. It's somewhat biased, but it's uh, got a fair amount of information in it. Dang. So yeah. Dang. And
0: then the billionaire, like paparazzi (laughs) sex. Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah, that's fucking. That
0: is goddamn wild. (laughs) Right. Like,
1: I remember hearing about the story years ago, and like, I didn't know much about it, just the fact that like her husband died at the same time. I was like, that's kind of weird. I I think I looked into it for like five seconds. I was like, okay, whatever. It was mold. And I just wrote it off, and it was just one of those things, though, that like, as I started to dig into it, it it's like, there was just so much going on. There's so much speculation. Everyone's like, got
0: a different story, and the mom's got, like, four stories, and...
1: Yeah, I'm really su- suspicious of oh, yeah. the mom. Like, I want to know more about that situation. Because she just kind of went along with whatever they were saying. Like, the whole thing about Simon saying he met her when she was 17, which I don't mm. think is true. And she's just all like, oh, yeah, mm. totally.
0: Some smells. Like, I think...
1: Yeah, I think that she's also... Like, I don't think she's bright. Um... I think that uh, Simon did kind of put her on a lead as well, as well and like had her believing that this wonderful man was taking care of everything. A wonderful
0: man. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 And yeah. So uh, what are you going to tell us <laughs> about that? <Alex? laughs> <laughs> okay. So ever since I was a, this was long ago, I was an English literature major. And I had a really wonderful professor who uh, taught a lot of Shakespeare. Um, he'd done some studying at Oxford. Like he was, he was hooked in, right? And then he's in this small town in Ohio. And one of the classes that he was going to run was a 500 level English class. It was one of the last ones I needed for my degree. This was ages ago. Uh, was everything <laughs> but Shakespeare. So <laughs> he wanted to talk about Shakespeare's contemporaries. So we read some really fucked up shit. <laughs> and the one that always stuck with me was the uh, the plays that Christopher Marlowe or Kit Marlowe wrote. Um, and one of the first stories that uh, my professor always told me was uh, Kit Marlowe um, had a very short life because he got in a bar fight and got stabbed in the eye and died instantly. Yeah. In the mid 1500s. That, that would do it. Would do yep. it. And, and there's like multiple stories and everything. And I was like, oh, what the heck? So I thought at first that we'd be talking about Christopher Marlowe, and then I thought, no, wait a second. He was a contemporary of Shakespeare. Everybody is aware of Shakespeare has probably had to read some Shakespeare at some point. And because Shakespeare lived in the 1500s, there's just we don't know a whole lot about him. And out of that has been birthed many a conspiracy theory. Um, the the most <laughs> one of the most more famous ones I will say and, and we'll get to who started who kind of like made this famous maybe they didn't start it but made this famous was that Shakespeare wasn't one person but was a number of contemporaries of his like Kit Marlowe who created this Shakespeare persona um, uh, so that's one rumor is that Shakespeare wasn't an actual person but that there were several people who wrote under this pseudonym and I was like oh yes I'm familiar with that one and then someone uh, on a podcast I was listening to had mentioned the, have you heard about the uh, Shakespeare was a woman conspiracy? And I was like, wait, what? Hold up. can't Put the brakes on. Back up. Beep, beep, beep. Back up all the way. Uh, so I started digging into this. Now, I will fully admit, there's no way that this is true. But it is really Interesting. <laughs> 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 so no one come after me. I don't really think this is the case. So let's start with Shakespeare. Lived more than 400 years ago, but a lot of the records from that time are just lost, they never existed, so we don't know a ton about him. Um we do know that he was baptized in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is 100 miles ish northwest of London, and he was baptized on April 26, 1564. But we don't know his exact birthday. Um We know that his life kind of uh, bounced between Stratford and London. Uh, He grew up. He had a family. He worked in London. He was an actor, a playwright, a partner in a leading acting company, on and on and on and on and on. Okay. Um, So he was the oldest surviving child of John and Mary Shakespeare. That was actually their last name. Uh, I know, right? (laughs) Their first I always thought, right, record, right, yeah. no, it was the like the record <laughs> show that that was an actual last name, and I was like, dope. <laughs> <laughs> so his parents had uh, two kids before him, but both girls, but they didn't live beyond infancy. So he grew up as the big brother. He had three younger brothers and two younger sisters. One of the younger sisters, Anne, died at seven. The rest of the kids lived into a, some form of adulthood. Again, mid fifteen hundreds, people didn't live that long. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. So he went to school, Um, his classes insisted upon an emphasis on like Latin. So he learned to read and write Latin. And a few years after he left school in 1582, he married a woman who was eight years older than him. So he married a woman named Anne Hathaway. She was already expecting their first child. Yep. Mm -hmm. Anne Hathaway. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. this is all documented she was 26 uh yeah he was 18
2: <laughs> and hathaway is a yep. vampire you by go. the way yep. uh,
0: i know well, i know it's really good i know i was like shit i didn't know all of this so i started to, yeah. this is where i started to get lost i was like nope hallie focus come on all right so uh they had kids and uh, what's really interesting is that uh, his only son died at 11. His oldest daughter later on married a well-to-do doctor. And they had a, uh, what would have been Shakespeare's ch- grandchild in 1608. And then in 1616, just months before his death, Shakespeare's other daughter married a Vinter. The family, of Vinter, Vinter, yeah, a v- Winter. What's that? Winter. Uh, wine person. Correct? Just winter in German? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Winter. Uh, shit. I had it. Where did it go? It's very late here. I am not sure. Crap. <laughs> Hold on. Where did that note go? Yeah. They they in, they are engaged in winemaking. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. <sighs> Fancy. What's interesting is once his son died and his daughters got married the family line died out. There are no direct descendants mm. of Shakespeare that have been documented. There have been rumors. That, like He
1: had grandchildren, though, yeah. he just died.
0: Yeah, huh. yeah, he didn't live very long in the 1500s. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> he lived long enough to have grandchildren. But yeah, but yeah. A, yeah,
0: it's, it's freaking buck wild. He died in 1616. And he was born in 1564. Did not live very long. All those people that always wish they lived in the, mm-hmm. you know, the middle times and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You want no, poop no, you. thrown on you from a window? like? Just, you want to be a, a surf? surf? Because yep. that is... You yeah. Love yeah. Sewage in the streets. It's just like, oh god, gross. So, all of this is to say that... Um, In his short lifespan, the consensus is that he wrote 37 plays. But again, because of inexact documentation, when the plays were first being organized and published, it's possible that he wrote 40, but a handful of them Mm. have never been fully contributed to his name. And the one that's always most contested is a play called Edward III. So... It's Mm. just something to note, something that I was kind of interested in, because then as I started to go down that rabbit hole, um, there have been just in the last couple of years, a fresh analysis of his plays and his sonnets. And the sonnets were of extreme interest because some researchers have found evidence that he was bisexual. Hey. Hey, there we go. Yeah. Um, there were new <laughs> findings that showed that the bard had affairs with both men and women during his marriage. I do I know so we're we're gonna I'm uh, okay we're okay with gonna this. come yep. back to the sonnets in a bit because there's a reference to a dark lady in his cool sonnets. Man. Yes, so there's an interesting thing. Um, so all of this has been documented there's there's a lot of things that are going on because. Certain things we just don't know how many plays exactly, and there's all these references and sonnets, and what is all of this talking about? So all of these, all of these, um, these plays and these works have theories on them, and one of them has to do with who actually Shakespeare was. Oh, he wasn't a real person. It was actually Francis Bacon and Kit Marlowe and Edward De Vere all writing together under one pseudonym, but. Like I mentioned earlier, the more interesting one is what if Shakespeare was actually a woman? So let's talk about, where did this go? No, I don't want Delia Bacon. We'll talk about Delia Bacon in a minute. (laughs) She was a troublemaker. We're going to talk about Mary Sidney. Mary Mary Sidney, who I didn't know anything about. Um, So I was just doing this research. There is a Mary Sidney society and there should be because Mary Sidney was an incredible woman who lived during Shakespeare's time. And this is one candidate that's been kind of thrust forward as potentially who Shakespeare actually was. She was one of the most educated women of her time. Um, She ran in a lot of the same circles that Shakespeare did She was one of the, she was very wealthy, her and her husband, and uh, they were patrons of one of the first theater companies to perform Shakespeare's plays. And was she actually using that name as camouflage, allowing her to publish, which she otherwise couldn't, because women weren't allowed to publish or act or be on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, So she was an interesting figure. She was uh, really, really smart, very passionate little arrogant little bold she was born three years before the date uh, that shakespeare was born and she died five years later after his stated death uh, yeah mm. so they're real close in age this whole time and for two decades she actually developed and led the most important literary circle in england's history and it's called wilton circle Um, And she did a ton of work. Her brother did a ton of work. And they did this to help publish plays, books, poems, and to get literature into the hands of people. Um, And she was devoted to this. And it's really interesting because she was devoted to creating really great works of English. And it wasn't a significant Mm -hmm. language at the time. Yeah. Hmm. He had French, Latin, Greek. There were a ton of great works in those languages, but there were very few in English. So she made this kind of her like hmm. lifelong goal. It's really interesting. I had
1: no idea. It's like it's funny because I didn't really think about that, mm-hmm. but that makes total sense.
0: Yep. I didn't either. And then when I started reading up on her, I was like, Oh shit, yeah, they're right. Holy crap. <laughs> English privilege. Mm-hmm. Rich- yeah. English wasn't really spoken anywhere else in the world. Rarely saw it in Scotland or Wales or Ireland. Um, and again, but you know, 400 and almost 500 years later, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so hmm. she was uh, not only dedicated to literature, she was also trained in medicine. She had her own alchemy laboratory. <laughs> and some, I know, Damn. I know. I'm in. Some of the recipes she developed are still in existence, including a recipe for disappearing ink.
3: Yes.
0: <laughs> lady could have been like a spy. So. She could have been. <laughs> she
1: probably <laughs> was. She could I have mean, been Shakespeare.
0: <laughs> that, and this is why this is so interesting. Like someone that, a woman, a woman that educated at that time. I, I could see huh. her creating this pseudonym and writing great works. Like, it just, it kind of clicks. So, um, she was fluent in Latin, French, and Italian, and also is believed to have known Welsh, Spanish, and probably Greek. She was involved in politics. She disliked the fawning of the royal court. She held large parties. She sponsored (laughs) acting troops. She rode horses. She hunted. She did lawn bowling. Like, this one was a powerhouse. And so it's after a lot of kind of like digging through a lot of just the opinions and the muck. Um, I ran across the Mary Sydney society. It's a website you can go to. They document her life. Um, and they especially were focused on documenting her love life because it has a striking resemblance to some of Shakespeare's sonnets. So this is fun. It's real hard to follow. So just go with me down this crazy path for a second. All right. So yeah. after her husband died, she was Mary was 43. At the time when her husband died. She had an affair with a younger man. Uh, Ten years younger. A Dr. Matthew Lister. She could marry him. Because of their differences in social status. But they were together for the rest of her life. Was he like higher than her or lower? She was a countess. Oh okay. And then there's just this. You know. Doctor. Um, (laughs) But there was a problem. Because Mary thought at one point. That the doctor she was having the affair with was also having an affair with Mary's dark-haired, dark-eyed niece, who was 19 and newly married. Uh-huh. Oh, damn. So Ooh. was this the dark lady in Shakespeare's sonnets who betrayed and cheated <laughs> and ran around? Maybe. Oh. maybe, maybe. Mm, okay. All right. There are more questions about this. Um, And there are questions about Shakespeare himself. How did a man born in Stratford acquire knowledge on display in the plays? How did he have knowledge of the court? How did he know multiple languages? How was he so smart with things like astronomy and music and the military, Um, especially uh, northern Italian cities, which come up in some of the plays? Interesting, because someone who was born poor and remained poor for a good chunk of his life until his plays started really taking off, how did he gain all of his knowledge? He wasn't sitting in a room reading books that didn't exist. So where did this come from? Well, guess who was mm. fluent in all of that? A little uh, countess named Mary Sidney. Hmm. <laughs> um. <laughs> So she was, she was an in, a really, really interesting woman. She was also known for her temper mm-hmm. and used her temper and her money and her influence to sway people. Um, so if you think about it, it's not such a far large logical leap that someone like that would just be like, well, I'm a woman. They won't let me publish. How about if I just publish under this name and <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a little bit of the Mary Sydney theory. The rest of it gets it starts to really fall apart after that. Um <laughs> do we have do we have any evidence that like they knew uh, each other no, not directly? Just that they ran <clears> in the <throat> same literary circles? Yeah. But I couldn't find a
2: no one ever saw them exactly. in the same place yes. at the same time.
0: <laughs> Three Mary Sidneys in a trench coat. I yeah, it's
3: like
0: <laughs> I'm there. Let's do it. But it is interesting, and she was a really interesting figure. Like I would totally read a book about her because, holy crap! Um, there's another theory that's yeah. been tossed around that uh, there was a there was there was, and this is true. There was another contemporary of Shakespeare's named Amelia Bassano. Uh, she lived roughly during the same time. She was born to a family of Venetian immigrants. Um, she was one of the first women in England to publish a volume of poetry. And uh, her existence oh. wasn't unearthed until 1973 by an Oxford historian named A.L. Rouse. And uh, this person speculated that Amelia was actually Shakespeare's mistress or the dark lady in the sonnets. Um, this mm. has been Yo, so yeah like, go ahead oh sorry um so like she wasn't uncovered until the 1970s was it just like her work was buried or was her it under work a was different buried name? and it was under a different name yep. both yep. okay mm. yeah. um wasn't nearly as as popular as uh the the male you know writers of the time um and yeah right exactly it's it's one of those things where it, And and as soon as you dig into Amelia Bassano, the story just falls apart on its face. It's been thoroughly debunked that this woman had any direct ties to Shakespeare, but it's a fun little thought experiment. We'll say Um, I, I was far more fascinated by uh, Mary Sidney myself, just because of her personality that came out immediately. Um, So when I was looking at all of this, it was like, well, you know how did how did this even happen? Who started the whole Shakespeare thing? Who went? Oh, hey, you wrote like thirty, almost forty plays and like a hundred some sonnets. You're not real. Like, who <laughs> who who even thinks that? It's like looking at John Grisham and going, "You're not real. You're a three cobalt <laughs> in a trench coat." Yeah, King. you're <laughs> Stephen King. You're this that. It's like what the fuck. So I was like, who 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 the hell even started this? um You can. This is like the first conspiracy theories. Yeah. Like this is like yeah.
1: people believing in like the oh, Illuminati. Yeah. Oh, Shakespeare right. was
2: it wasn't to... real. One person couldn't There's write all no of this stuff. There's no way anybody was that
0: smart. It was actually some guy who got his eye stabbed out in a bar fight when he was like 27. <laughs> 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 Fucking Kip Marlowe. Oh my god. Um, it's just it's <laughs> wild. Like if you're gonna go out, that's the way to go out. That's like Renaissance era. <laughs> <laughs> Wrestlemania right there. <laughs> like a good stabbing yeah. to the eye, please. <laughs> this is how I'll die. Oh, man. So, who the hell even...
2: I haven't had nearly enough to drink. Allow me to insult your mother <laughs> so you can stab me. In what
0: are some really good Renaissance-era your mama jokes? Um... <laughs> <laughs> so dumb. So dumb. Oh, shit. Anyways, enter this woman named Delia Bacon. She hated Shakespeare so much that she actually lost her mind trying to prove that he didn't write his plays. <laughs> she okay. dismissed him as vulgar and illiterate and a stable boy. Uh, she preferred to believe that Francis Bacon authored the plays uh, and that she was related to Francis Bacon. She wasn't. Um, she, she was really <laughs> smart. She had brain, she had personality and she was so dedicated to this cause that she went as far as trying to enlist Ralph Waldo Emerson, Thomas Carlyle, and Nathaniel Hawthorne in her uh, campaign, we'll say. <laughs> she got on a okay. ship to cross the Atlantic. She was an American. Um, went to England to conduct research. And she was hell-bent on opening Shakespeare's tomb to find the proof that she knew that Francis Bacon had hidden. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah, wow. was, yeah,
0: yeah. She was crazy, crazy pants. So, year is this? um this she happened? was born in 1811. Huh? Okay. So a good almost 300 years after Shakespeare. Uh, she was actually born in Talmadge, Ohio. Uh, her mm-hmm. father was a Congregationalist minister, and he died when she was six. And then the family moved to New England, where the rest of her like extended family was. Her education ended when she was fourteen, and she tried to start her own school. And uh, what is really interesting is that um, she was super interested in books and writing, and she actually won one hundred dollars for a short story from the Philadelphia Saturday Courier, and she beat out Edgar Allan Poe for that prize.
3: Oh, wow. damn!
0: <laughs> like she yeah, had the chops. Yeah. And then just went off the deep end. so she she goes on to become this really respected professional lecturer, and she traveled around and she was teaching history and literature for women, at, which again, very novel at the time. Um, and when she was thirty six, she stayed in a boarding house in New Haven in New England. She had a really disastrous love affair with a twenty three year old theology graduate at Yale named Alexander McCorter. Uh, and she uh, got engaged to him. It turned out that there was there was a whole uh, trial before a bunch of ministers that her uh, Delia's brother got involved in. Her love affair, boy toy claimed that Delia chased him. She claimed that he let her on. Oh my gosh, it's a scandal. It was a scandal, like Scandal went national. <laughs> so in order to deflect attention, And to take her mind off of everything that was going on and her losing her lover, she threw herself into this campaign to discredit Shakespeare. Um, She uh, introduced different writers to this theory. She encouraged this magazine called Putnam's Monthly to give her assignments and to give her money so she could go do more research. She didn't do any hard research though. That's the thing. She basically just was like I know this is this is like the ultimate conspiracy theorist, right? I know aliens are watching me. I need a tinfoil hat. She just knew that her proof was in the plays. And so she grew obsessed with opening Francis Bacon's tomb to find proof. Like she wanted to break in. because." <laughs>
1: It's this a, is wild. This is like this some is fucking national treasure shit. I know. Shit. I know. It's fucking
0: yeah. crazy.
2: The, the original Tomb Raider. Dad,
1: yes.
0: <laughs> so um, she was uh, in the middle of all of this. She was desperate for money. And so she got in contact with Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hawthorne paid her debts, read her work, helped her find a publisher. He wrote the foreword for her book. And the book was called The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded.
1: And did they sleep together? I don't think. Just did I think he did it out of the goodness of his, like, of his
0: heart. Yeah. Wow. A man in the I know, animals? right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm impressed. Don't be too impressed, though.
3: Something, something it is super fishy. Specific, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's got there to be more than this. If I see some banging yeah.
0: somewhere, I'll be shocked. But there's no proof. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He wrote, he the, wrote forward. the forward,
0: but he yeah. pissed her off because in that foreword, he said he didn't believe her.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Yes.
0: It's like the ultimate troll. Oh,
3: that's so good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll get you yep. published. Yep. <laughs> so in the, this is how obsessed this woman was. In the middle of waiting for her book to be published, she tries to get into Shakespeare's tomb and she goes. She visits there night after night. She came to the church with a lantern and stared at the altar. And just sat there all okay. night long. Eventually, the vicar got so concerned, he considered letting her into the tomb. But sitting there night after night on really, really cold evenings, she got ill and gave up. Her brother begs her to come home. And then finally, when her book is published, it is 682 pages. Again, all on the proof, proof quote unquote, that Shakespeare didn't exist and didn't write all these plays but it was mostly francis bacon and in the 1800s Uh written by a woman no one read it the critics trashed it and she became suicidal delusional and feverish and the sad part about this is that she was eventually committed to an asylum in england then sent home to New England, and she died in an asylum in Hartford, Connecticut on September 2nd, 1859, at age 48. Wow. It's brutal. Brutal. She is credited as one of the first modern critics. Um, She's also (laughs) been credited for recognizing that Shakespeare foretold England's political upheavals, and if she'd just stopped there, people wouldn't have dismissed (laughs) her as, like... A crazy person.
1: Now, do you think that her obsession with Shakespeare caused her craziness? Or was her craziness caused, what caused the I Shakespeare I think it's a little obsession? of A,
0: a little of B. I think it was a parasitic okay. relationship with the information. Like, she she was so educated and had no outlet for it. And being becoming obsessed wasn't a far stretch for her. She had to pour herself into something
1: were you able to find any like um anything from her book (laughs) Unfortunately,
3: i'm so
0: curious what it says because 600 pages with no evidence pages with no real research or evidence yep basically the rantings of a mad woman yeah there are a few pages that you can get like google books has some pages but it's really hard mm. to read the whole thing. There have been papers written about her, you know, there's a ton of stuff on like JSTOR and everything looking at her life. Um but a, a lot of it is just like you get a handful of pages and that's about that's about it that you can get. Um there is the the front page mm. that I was able to see, it was published in 1857. There's a preface by Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The Scarlet Letter, etc. Um
3: hmm <laughs>
0: you can find some of the scans of the book but it looks like as i was looking through it it looks like some of the pages have kind of been cut off it doesn't look like a full replica of it so mm. and i could be wrong there like i'm i've looked at it several times and it's like oh yes here's a bunch of pages but you get to like page 200 and then yeah it's a hot mess it's a hot mess <laughs> 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 there's still 400 pages to go 400 pages to go almost 500 pages yeah it's it is it is kind of buck wild what you do manage to read because it's like oh i i think you were obsessed holy shit yeah
2: yeah and it's always interesting to like see i would be interested to know what led her to this obsession she hated shakespeare Well, well, that's what I mean. Like, what was what drove this? Like, my
0: understanding because he was so popular. I think it was she genuinely disliked the writing. Uh, Okay. And I, if if it were my guess, that obsession came from a mental illness, and they Mm -hmm. just started feeding on each other. I don't know, man, who spends an inordinate amount
1: of time researching things with almost no evidence. I
0: I mean, it's it's um oh god, it's so so interesting. I also read this like really buck wild Atlantic article by um Elizabeth let me scroll up back to my notes by Elizabeth Winkler. Um it it's it's really weird. She spends a lot of time like diving into her own feelings and theories and talking about how the heroines of Shakespeare's works are remarkable. She talks about Amelia Bassano, who again has been debunked as, you know, the, the dark lady or actually Shakespeare. There's no real ties there between the two. Um, But it, it, she doesn't really dive into Mary Sidney much. And I was just like, you have a better Hmm. candidate Hmm. with me. I mean, she does talk about her a little bit, but then she goes. Not nearly as much as yeah, she deserved. as much as she deserved. And it was, I was like, I feel like Mary Sidney is a better candidate for this wild, like, freaking buck wild theory if you're gonna put it forward. The Atlantic article is really, <laughs> really, really weird to read. <laughs> I read it a couple of times and I was just like, what? What are you trying to get? I think you're all up in your feelings. And I think you're not get some feelings over there like maybe use a journal talk to somebody like you know her basically was like no one could it was really weird because to me it boiled down to well shakespeare wrote these incredible women well no one could write those women unless it was a woman yeah oh my god that's your only evidence (laughs) it was just it was weirdly cherry-picked and didn't boil down to much it was very Mm -hmm. strange but of course when you google what shakespeare was a woman that article is one of the first thing that pops up and what's hilarious is that pops up and then right below it is another atlantic article contesting her article (laughs) (laughs) and then these like the fighting that happens the 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 interpersonal fighting between these two people and it's like oh my god oh Oh my God. god this is too much i can't handle this Um, But I do encourage people to look at the Mary, there's marysydneysociety.org had a ton of information on her. She was a really fascinating woman. They um, encourage people to, it says we also encourage reading and exploration of the Shakespearean works themselves. Um, And uh, the society is quote, an educational and literary organization founded on the premise that Mary Sidney Herbert, Countess of Pembroke, wrote the works attributed to William Shakespeare. That's awesome. Yeah, there's a whole, I mean, they're they're very serious about this. Like, they're very serious about proving that she was the one who was behind she was Shakespeare. Um, There are a couple of people who have done some biographies of hers. You can read some of her works online. It's all linked together. There's a book that I couldn't get a hold of because it was, Way too expensive. It's called the Sweet Swan of Avon. Did a woman write Shakespeare? By Robin P. Williams, um supposed to be the leading <laughs> title on this this theory. So it's really, really interesting. I learned a whole lot. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I'd I totally ship it. Right? It's it. Yeah, this mm-hmm. this lady was I mean. badass, especially for um, you know a woman in the 1500s. Like, dang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was the first woman to publish original dramatic verse. It was allowed because it was for the queen. I know. (laughs) I I know. Okay. Yeah,
2: that's very. She played the
0: lute, um, and the violin. Reportedly, Uh, she was she a bard? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I say she was a fiery redhead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just so so interesting, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Was Shakespeare a woman? I don't think so, but I learned a lot about Mar- Mary Sidney. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's like super yep. interesting. I feel like it's probably more interesting in his actual life <laughs> that,
0: because so little is documented. There are whole chunks of his of yeah. his early married life that just the info doesn't exist at all so yeah
2: well that's obviously because they got married and then they just time traveled back to here <laughs> to learn all of the exactly. things they need to learn went back to become famous and then when <laughs> it was time to die just came back here to be famous was still a
0: time traveler <gasps>
2: I shared that picture of Anne yeah, Hathaway and Yeah, that's a bit husband, much. And they look exactly
0: That's a bit, that's a bit much.
2: it's, it's Oh, that weird.
0: is fucking crazy. Is Holy right? shit. I, uh no me gusta that is scary. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So it's
1: Anne Hathaway and Keanu Reeves, right? <laughs> they're the they're the time, oh the time traveling
0: immortals. Oh, jeez. <laughs>
1: I'm seriously considering doing the canon reviews and world oh, theories. Oh, the that.
3: that
0: would be really yeah. good. That would be really, really good.
1: I might be able to actually make that one. short. I think I. I think I gotta nope. do the there's the no MUFON
0: idea. thing. The uh, the big yeah, the MUFON? MUFON, the big UFO convention. Oh, Ooh. they go out in the desert nice. and do the whole the MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. You guys have never heard of that? Oh shit it's some no. good shit man oh, no. you gotta go to that site it's fucking wild
3: <laughs> alright
1: yeah. so this is the uh, first episode of <laughs> the human exception like subscribe all that stuff peace, peace. bye Craig bye
0: <laughs> hell yeah
2: This is also a risky click Mm of the day. You're welcome.
0: You're going to start getting all (laughs) kinds of weird-ass ads. (laughs) Like we don't already. (laughs) Well, this is true, yeah. Yeah, All of the algorithms have decided that we need to... I I no longer need to get ads for uh, weddings and babies, and now I can get aliens and Shakespeare sonnets. (laughs)